Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following is a broadcast from the Global Authority in Mixed Martial Arts. The Shoot Radio Network. Hey everyone, Chael Sonnen here. The World Series of Fighting is coming to Foxwoods Resort Casino on June 17th, and I want to see you there. The heavyweight champion Ivanov comes back to defend his title against Copeland. Plus, High versus Ricci are going to square off for the number one contender spot. And local star John Howard makes his Decagon debut come a little bit early. I'm going to be signing autographs along with other World Series of Fighting stars. For tickets, go to WSOF.com or Foxwoods.com. You're listening to a Sure Dog Radio Network special UFC roundtable. Here's your host, Jack Encarnacio. And welcome to part two of a, the Sure Dog Radio Network roundtable for UFC 199, Rockhold versus Bisping 2, which goes down from the Forum in Inglewood, California, Saturday on pay-per-view. I'm your host, Jack Encarnacio. Thanks for joining us again here on our UFC 199 coverage at SureDog.com, the global authority in mixed martial arts. We dispensed with the prelims uh, last time, available now at the SureDog.com uh, and SureDog Radio Network archives right now, where we talked about the entire preliminary spread, including four prelims on Fight Pass and four on Fox Sports 1, headlined by Brian Ortega versus Clay Guida at Featherweight. We now dig into the meat of the card as Saturday night approaches, and it'll open up uh, at Lightweight with Dustin Poirier and Bobby Green. Our panelists today, SureDog.com's administrative editor, as well as co-host of Cheap Seats and Press Row here on the SRN, Mr. Jordan Breen. We're also welcomed by Sports Illustrated's Jeff Wagenheim for the first time here on the roundtable. And from BloodyElbow.com, Bad Left Hook, and Sherdog.com, as well as the Heavy Hands podcast, Connor Rebush back with us, picking up right where we left off. It is Poirier versus Bobby Green at 27 years old. The Diamond is now 19-4 and four in his mixed martial arts career, working out of American Top Team, and looking to make it four straight victories in the UFC Saturday, having most recently defeated Joseph Duffy at UFC 195, the unanimous decision over 15 minutes. Yancey Medeiros via first-round TKO in June of 2015, which is certainly no small feat and a testament to the power of Poirier, considering the uh, chin durability we saw from Medeiros against Masar and Duba not too long ago. And uh, the third of that three-fight streak was Carlos Diego Ferreira for Dustin Poirier, defeating him via first-round knockout in 2015. So it's uh, certainly been a fortuitous step up in weight uh, for the former featherweight in Poirier. He faces Bobby King Green, the 29-year-old Green uh, 
California native out of Redlands, California, 23-6 and six in his pro campaign, longtime veteran of the King of the Cage fights in California. He's coming off a loss to Edson Barboza in his last outing, November of 2014, so he's been shelved with injuries and the such for a significant amount of time. That was a unanimous decision loss and the first for Bobby Green in the UFC. He was successful in his debut back at UFC 156, defeating Jacob Volkman. He also picked up victories over James Krause, Pat Healy, and Josh Thompson in the octagon. The Thompson win coming in July 2014 via split decision. Been fighting pro since 2008. The colorful Bobby Green steps in against the streaking Dustin Poirier. Jordan Breen, we turn to you to get us started on our UFC 199 main card coverage. Is it Poirier or is it Green? It's got to be Dustin Poirier for me, not because Bobby Green can't hit hard, can't wrestle, can't win MMA. If I can't win a close, scrappy, gritty kind of fight, he can do all these things. The question is... What's he actually going to try to do? Because Bobby Green, as much as he loves hitting people and knocking them out and styling on people, he mostly seems to love trying to make his opponent look like an asshole instead of actually winning the fight. <laughs> there's only so much. There's only like a, a certain. There's there's a, a very definitive ceiling on the extent to which you will be rewarded in an MMA fight if instead of throwing strikes back at your opponent every time they attack you, you jump away, laugh at them, and tell them to like come on. And start trying to taunt them and like laugh at them and dance at them and do a bunch of stuff like that. That seems to be Bobby Green's primary occupation. Unless he tries to turn <laughs> like, you know, Dustin Poirier's advances into serious counter opportunities, he's going to get beat up because Poirier is going to come with a ton of offense and attack, attack, attack. If Bobby Green uh, doesn't want to switch to his wrestling, which is fantastic, if Bobby Green doesn't want to actually throw back with consistency, because he can throw a ton of strikes. When he suddenly opens up and throws uh, you know, a, a clean, accurate counter shot, or heaven forbid, a combination, or he's got great flying knees, got great kicks, but they don't normally you know, come with any level of consistency. And so I think against Poirier, not only does he stand the chance of being outworked, he also stands the chance of you know, legitimately being compromised. Poirier can hurt him, and also if, if Bobby Green got hurt, I could definitely see Poirier being able to tap him out as well. I think Green's probably going to make it the full 15 minutes because I suspect that uh, part of his MO, like, I think, like, the Edson Barboza fight, when he kind of realized that he didn't really have anything for Barboza, Barboza was just going to kick the shit out of him. Bobby Green's focus essentially shifted to how can I just try to clown on this guy and, and preserve? And I think we might end up with that here. I, I hope that Bobby Green bites down in the mouth guard and for whatever reason hates Dustin Poirier's stinking guts and wants to make him cry and actually throws back at him because it would be this is a fight that could be a wonderful up down fight. You know, when Bobby Green actually really wants to 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 work the full extent of his game, wants to attack with boxing combinations and kicks and then move into the clinch, dirty box, wrestle, ground and pound, dive on a guy's back, beat the shit out of him, roll around. That's a perfect compliment for Poirier. Unfortunately, I think Poirier is going to put on Murley. Bobby Green's going to go into Bobby Green defensive show off mode. You didn't really beat me, bro. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with Sean Strickland and guys that can typically avoid taking any serious damage and therefore constantly feel like, dude, none of these guys are as good as me. Whatever. I think, unfortunately, we're going to be in for a Dustin Poirier 15-minute decision, but I want the gunfight. Give me the gunfight if possible. Bobby Green, uh, make it happen. Rooting for Festacuffs and picking Dustin Poirier is Jordan Breen as we get the main card portion of this Sherdog Radio Network roundtable started for UFC 199. Green is out there as high as plus 186 at the moment as the underdog in the first fight on pay-per-view. Connor Rebush. 
Well, playing off of what Jordan just said, uh, I, there's a strange, slightly masochistic part of me that really still wonders what the very shortly, uh, shortly existing, I, I don't know what I'm saying, but the fight that existed very shortly between Masvidal and Green, I really, there's a part of me that wants to see that fight. Two guys just kind of laughing at each other and trying to make each other feel bad for not knocking the other guy out when they well, land. Also, two, two very hard men. I mean, honestly, I, I said a minute ago that, you know, I hope Bobby Green, Bobby Green should bring the guns. I probably shouldn't have said that. I mean, this is a dude that grew up with an incredibly violent and and felonious upbringing, including uh, shooting off and running guns for gangs and stuff like that. So probably not the best choice of words, all things considered. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, Bobby Green, I, I said this. Um, I said this. If, if people are listening to these these two parts in a row, they heard me say this about Brian Ortega on part one. But Bobby Green is the kind of fighter who has this wildly inconsistent style and yet somehow managed to find very consistent success. Eight fight winning streak against a lot of seriously considerable names in Pat Healy, Josh Thompson, James Krause, Jacob Volkman. Um, those fights showed off both what Green is very good at and what he's not good at. I think the weird thing is that in coming into that Edson Barboza fight, one of the things that seems to have cinched him a lot of those victories, which is that he was comfortable getting in his opponent's faces and throwing a lot, maybe not stringing his attacks together quite so well, but making them react to a lot of different strikes. He didn't do that against Barboza, whether it was because Barboza was so good that he could avoid it is a possibility. I also have to wonder if because of his, his uh, pretty relentless schedule, um, if Bobby green and the numerous injuries he had that caused him to pull out of fights just after the Barboza loss, if perhaps green had some injuries that came calling um, in that bout. So I'm a little hopeful that he will come into this fight after a long layoff, looking a little renewed, uh, but the fact that he had so many injuries in the interim doesn't really speak highly of that possibility. Dustin Poirier, on the other hand, has looked absolutely fantastic since coming to lightweight for two reasons, I think. One, the aggressive boxer puncher that he always wanted to be is now fully able to be unleashed because Dustin Poirier doesn't have to cut weight anymore. Uh, not much. You know, he doesn't have to cut as much weight. He can pack on a little more muscle and not have to worry about it. So I think his gas tank is no longer as much of an issue as it used to be. Uh, not that he used to gas a lot, but he used to have bouts of inactivity, whereas now he is throwing punches constantly. Um, he has retained his power. Um, it almost looks like because he throws more, his power is more of a factor. He's gotten a ton of knockouts and big knockdowns uh, since coming back to the lightweight division. And then the other factor, I think, is that Dustin Poirier has perhaps matured a little bit. He's kind of become more of a cold, hard killer of a fighter, um, that will be tested. That theory will be tested in this fight because, as Jordan said, Bobby Green loves to make people look like assholes, um, just as Conor McGregor does uh, and, and just as Cub Swanson did when he sat on top of Dustin Poirier and motioned for the crowd to cheer him on while he worked from Mount. And if Dustin Poirier has the same kind of mental issues he did then, they will quickly come to bear, I think, when Bobby Green starts clowning him and teasing him for each successive shot not actually doing the damage Poirier wants it to do. Um, I do think Poirier has matured. I do think he throws consistently enough and hits hard enough to uh, find ways around Bobby Green's weird offense and, and just out strike, out point him, throw more volume than him and land the more decisive shots. Uh, but I'm interested to see how Poirier deals with such a confounding opponent as Bobby Green. But I do have to pick Dustin Poirier by decision.
We've got two ballots for the diamond to open up UFC 199 on pay-per-view. Jeff Wagenheim is at unanimous for the Louisianan. Oh man, I so much want to pick a pick an upset. I just you know, uh, just just for the heck of it, you know, you want to pick an upset. You want to make your mark. Yeah, you know, and uh, and and Bobby Green is the uh, is really the guy. The guy that has the shortest odds of any of the underdogs on this main card. Um, so uh, you know, but <laughs> and he's a guy that he's beaten some tough guys, um, and he and even his you know even that loss to Barbosa. Um, you know, when you see what Barbosa just did in his fight with Anthony Pettis, you know, you sort of think, okay, well, that's not such a that's not just a bad thing. But that loss to Barbosa did happen uh, a good year and a half ago, and um, you know, I, I'm not I I know sometimes guys come back rested and renewed and all that, but but um, you know, you have a long layoff. It takes a little bit of time to get back in your get your game back uh, in shape, and um, Poirier. Uh, since his loss to Conor McGregor, has um, become a more urgent fighter and, and more active. Not just active in, in the amount of trips he's been he's made into the cage, but just more active once he's in there. And I think that's going to pose some problems for Bobby Green. It may take a little while if he can if he can um, uh, get this fight going a little longer. Maybe he will catch his groove. But um, you know, three round fight I, i'm i'm sort of figuring that that poirier is going to come out there and um you know win the first round and who knows whether you know may, maybe green will have to win the second and third to, to pull that upset off and i just don't think he's going to do it i'm i'm figuring that poirier is going to going to um uh win a good fight i think it's going to be a pretty good fight but i think that poirier will get a good jump start on it and um you know win two of the three rounds and get a decision all right, so three ballots for Dustin Poirier, the favorite in our opening contest at UFC 199 on pay-per-view to get the victory, and we move from there to the middleweight division as Dan Henderson once again steps into the eight-sided cage to face Hector Lombard in a battle of grizzled mixed martial arts veterans. Hendo, now 45 years old, Temecula, California, of course, uh, flying the Team Quest flag all these years, continues to do so on home soil Saturday in Inglewood. He now stands at 31 and 14 in mixed martial arts and is coming off a first-round knockout loss to Vitor Belfort, November 2015 in Brazil. Prior to that, defeated Tim Boach um, in the fight to sort of keep him afloat, considering he was coming off losses back-to-back to Gagard Masasi and Daniel Cormier coming into that fight. Found Boach's chin in a slugfest in just 28 seconds, June of last year, and uh, picked up a victory at 44 years old. But um, definitely has not been... Um, Coming up, coming up roses lately for Dan Henderson after coming back to the UFC, um, defeating Fedor, of course, in Strike Force in 2011, Fei Zhao to win the championship in 2011, uh, Sobral as well in 2010 in Strike Force. Um, he's defeated Shogun twice and Boach. Other than that, it's been tough outings, and they've certainly matched him tough. Machida, Evans, Belfour, Cormier, Masasi, and Belfour second time. So uh, for Dan Henderson, it's. Um, a chance to show out once again in his home state and uh, certainly has earned uh, as much respect as he's ever going to get. Uh, are we at the diminishing returns point of his career? One would think so. But um, here in the main card of UFC 199, uh, hopefully able to register something memorable 
something that isn't damaging to uh, the discussion around him and the perception of where he stands. Hector Lombard is the opponent, 38 years old, 34, 5, 1, and 2 in his mixed martial arts career, working out of American Top Team and uh, coming off a loss to Neil Magny in March via third-round TKO. That was the uh, Mark Hunt Frank Muir fight night card there, uh, March 19th, Magny picking up the victory. Prior to that, he beat Josh Berkman at UFC 182, but it was overturned uh, due to a drug test failure for Lombard. That was January of 2015. Prior to that, Lombard beat Jake Shields via unanimous decision at UFC 171 and Nate Marquardt at UFC 166. The balance of Lombard's UFC campaign has seen losses to Yushin Okami and Tim Boach. Boach in his UFC debut at UFC 149 in 2012. Highly disputed decision there. And a first-round knockout of Husamar Palhares back in 2012. So uh, certainly has faced all manner of opposition in the UFC thus far and other obstacles as well. The 38-year-old Lombard faces the 45-year-old Dan Henderson at middleweight here at UFC 199. Jeff Wagenheim, we start with you. Who gets his hand raised? Well, I just don't like this fight. Um, you know, a 45-year-old guy in the cage um, against a, a guy with the kind of power that Lombard has. I mean, I don't think Lombard is is you know, Lombard is what 30, 38, 39 years mm-hmm. old himself. But uh, um, and he is coming up that loss to Magny, and yeah, maybe this could be the one. Maybe this maybe this could be the upset I've been looking for. But I just don't see it. I I think um, you know. Um, I know I just don't like to see a guy like Dan Henderson going out there continually, um, you know, looking for that one elusive win. I mean, I felt like that that Bosch win would have been a nice way to just cap it. You know, just he went out there and and got it done in in seconds, and it would have been a nice thing. Um, and I don't know that he's going to find another one of those things. Um, yeah, he can land that 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 big right hand, um, but uh, you know, Lombard is. You know, Lombard is a, a guy who's 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 going to stay out of that range, and when he and he's going to get come into range when he's ready to strike. And you know, he's there aren't too many guys you could say are going to you know that if Henderson gets locked up with that he's that he's not going to be in an advantage. But I think Lombard might be one of those guys that that uh, that he's not going to have an advantage of if they happen to lock up. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not high I'm not that high on Lombard right now. But I'm higher on Lombard than I am on on Dan Henderson at this point in his career. So um, I got to go with uh, Hector Lombard. Okay, the ballot for the favorite in Lombard. Henderson out there as high as plus 336 here on the main card of UFC 199. Jordan Breen. Jack, are you are you saddened that Hector Lombard has abandoned the show weather nickname? No. He's, uh, he's, he? he's, gone, he's gone back to just being lightning, man. Is that right? Uh, I was unaware he'd gone to something else, but I know the show weather thing had been retired. I was glad I didn't have to say it. Show weather isn't the amazing, memorable nickname that he thought it would be? Is that what you're saying? No, no. More like no weather. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, he certainly wasn't a man for all seasons against uh, Neil Magny. And uh, shout-outs to, to, uh, what's his face? Not not John Sharp, the other other terrible, Steve Percival, the other terrible Australian. Worst shout-out ever. Uh, well, I mean, I could, I could picture Steve Percival's head floating there. I just, I don't, I, I, the thing Shout is, I probably, 
I feel I feel like I would have gotten the first try if Australian <laughs> officials hadn't back to back years locked up like Sherdog uh, helping to most significantly author Sherdog.com's beatdown of the year. John Sharp last year with Steve Miocic and Mark Hunt, and heaven forbid we get something worse this year than Neil Magny and Hector Lombard. <laughs> Even if Magny got wailed on early, the way it eventually ended up, oh, who knows? Maybe in the USADA and post Magny era. Hector Lombard is a shell of himself, and Dan Henderson can land that one last big right hand. Unfortunately, like Jeff, I don't see it materializing that way. Lombard's still much quicker. He's a lefty. He's incredibly powerful, and he's someone that can strike from range and step inside quickly despite being a a short, compact guy. And as well, if they do go into any kind of clinch situation, that's where Lombard actually tends to let off quick rips of punches, hooks and uppercuts, and could probably do a whole ton of damage to Henderson in a hurry. I mean, you want to see a guy like Dan Henderson, probably one of the 10 most accomplished mixed martial artists ever, right off into the sunset on a victory in California, in Los Angeles. It'd be charming. But unfortunately, I don't think that's what's going to come to pass here. This is another really rough and rugged style matchup for Dan Henderson, something that hasn't just marked the twilight of his career, but really has encapsulated most of his career. Talking about a guy who debuted in a Valley Tudo tournament that had Pele in it. You know what I mean? Like... Dan Henderson's been overcoming the odds for a minute, unfortunately. I think we're, we're, we're long past that point. The fortunate silver lining is, even if Hector Lombard goes out and puts him on a stretcher or something like that, Dan Henderson's uh, achievements are so innumerable, even if they're dotted with many a decision he probably shouldn't have won in the first half of his career, that no matter what Hector Lombard does to him, it's, it's not going to be the way we remember Dan Henderson. Yeah. Amen to that. And uh, Connor Raybush, do you like Hector Lombard as well? Well, I do. Um, well, I like Dan Henderson. I think Hector Lombard will beat him mm-hmm. is a better way to say that. I, you know, I think I can recognize now that in a few years, I will probably really appreciate what Dan Henderson's twilight years as a mixed martial artist look like. Um, there's a certain romance to it. You know, it's kind of like Sam Langford fighting Harry Wills 22 times and losing clearly more than 10 of those times, but still getting you know, at 10 losses deep, still getting a knockout in the second round. There's something like that. You know, if it wasn't so awful to watch Dan Henderson, a beloved veteran of the pride era of MMA, if it wasn't so awful to watch him lose, it wouldn't be so fun and so inspiring to watch him win. Um, I'm also reminded of Mark Munoz's retirement win. I mean, three first-round finishes in a row, that's tough to watch for a guy as likable and as charismatic and as exciting as Mark Munoz, but how good was it to watch him retire on a victory over Luke Barnett? Uh, it was just, you know, in his home, not his home country, but in his country of country of his family's origin, it was just a very, very uplifting thing to see. And so, and, and it's so rare in mixed martial arts. Yeah, so you know what I mean? Few, how how often do we get like Chris Lytle owning Dan Hardy out of nowhere, and then just going, oh man, I didn't think that shit was going to happen. I'm getting out of here. Peace. I'm running for public <laughs> yeah. office. And as much as Dan Henderson is not retiring on the back of some of these unexpected uh, wins, these wins that the pundits don't see happening for him, the fact that he's still getting them now and then in the future, I think, will will add to his legacy. You know, Jordan, you said that this isn't how we're going to remember Dan Henderson, but I think we will remember him not only as the great who who fought probably one of the, if not the toughest resumes over the course of his career in MMA history, but also as the guy who, despite losing all of his physical gifts, um, including some of them being slightly artificial in the form of TRT, still managed to turn in some very impressive wins, still managed to snatch these small 
twinkling opportunities in or, his or uh, just being artificial in terms of just being being shit decisions. You're talking with a guy who <laughs> I mean, if you say if you say rings king of kings rules, there's a lot of things that entails. But one of the specific things is that it's two five-minute rounds followed by an extension round if it's a draw after two. These are the rules for the King of Kings tournaments in, <laughs> in uh, 99, 2000, and 2001. And uh, you better believe that Dan Henderson, in the finals of the Rings 99 King of Kings, beat Babalu by majority draw after two rounds. <laughs> after an entire tournament, a 32-man open-weight tournament – of enormous like prominence, stature, and uh, a true milestone in mixed martial arts history. After an entire tournament of extension rounds for anything that was a draw after two rounds, Dan Henderson wins the whole thing via draw <laughs> in the finals. To say nothing of his wins over like Yuki Kondo or uh, arguably the first Bustamante fight, the Ninja fight, which is a legendary crock of shit as well. Dan, Dan Henderson's <laughs> had some experience in this game. Or the second Bustamante, sure. I should have said. Well, Dan Henderson's style has gone through many evolutions over the years. You know, he was the boring decision grappler. Then he was the guy who realized he could hit people kind of hard while taking them down from the clinch. And then he was the slow guy who shuffled forward and knocked people out with the right hand. Now he's the even slower guy who struggles to shuffle forward and misses with the right hand more than he lands it. Um, it's not always fun to watch. Hector Lombard definitely has his shortcomings. Uh, stamina, opponents who can keep him at range, opponents who actually care about winning rounds and throwing volume. But Dan Henderson's shortcomings are far easier to capitalize on, namely the fact that he is pretty much a sitting duck for anyone experienced good enough, fast enough, whatever enough to just put a hand on his chin. And Hector Lombard is better at that than most fighters. So I think that he will knock Dan Henderson out in the first round. If Dan Henderson wins, it'll be uplifting, but it'll only be uplifting because the fully expected result of Hector Lombard crushing him will be so hard to watch. Well, it'll be uplifting if indeed that's the way Dan Henderson walks away. If, if it will not be uplifting, if it turns out that Dan then feels emboldened to continue. At least the yeah. are expensive. I'm, I mean, I think I think even if even if it goes on for ten more years of Henderson getting all the losses, if you give him five or ten years, we will look back and be like, man, wasn't it great how he knocked out Tim Boach? Even though he didn't retire, wasn't it amazing that he was crafty enough to do that? Even though he was clearly past his prime and completely washed up as a fighter, but watching it happen in the here and now, it's not it's not fun. <laughs> so I expect this to be the least fun moment of this card. We don't want to see Willie Mays with the Mets. Yeah, well put. Well put. I, yeah, it, it actively authoring uh, the feeling that will envelop the uh, twilight of his career is Dan Henderson. He faces Hector Lombard at UFC 199 Saturday, and the pick of all three panelists is for it not to be a great night for uh, the possessor of the H-bomb, though certainly that punch will fly in Inglewood. We'll see if it lands uh, one more time for Dan Henderson. We move third from the top now on the main card to a very competitive featherweight fight as Max Holloway faces former title challenger Ricardo Lamas. Max Holloway now 24 years old, 15-3 and three in the game, uh, and despite just 24 years uh, on this earth, uh, incredibly and remarkably mature as a featherweight contender, coming off the victory over Jeremy Stevens at UFC 194 in December via unanimous decision, absolutely uh, rocking and rolling uh, in the UFC's featherweight division as Max Holloway lately. 
uh, riding a, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight fight win streak in the division before Stevens, Charles Oliveira, Cub Swanson, Cole Miller, Akira Kurosani, Clay Collard, Andre Feely, and Will Chope. All those fights uh, coming after the loss to Conor McGregor back in August of 2013 via unanimous decision. He also dropped a split decision to Dennis Bermudez at UFC 160 in 2013. Um, and lost to Dustin Poirier in his debut at UFC 143. Jordan, Jordan you forgot to boo for that one. Oh, the C, like it's 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 a it's a it's a matter of practice. I gotta I gotta stay I gotta stay in the groove. Oh, will what? you read it again for us, Jack? Well, I read it again. Let me let me locate the Bermudez split <clears throat> decision. UFC 160. He lost to Dennis Bermudez via split decision. Oh. There it is. Okay, oh, <laughs> a batting uh, cleanup there, or with the backup there is Conor Rebush. <laughs> so blessed Max Holloway, uh, incredible run, and Ricardo Lamas um, looking to rebuild a campaign. He lost to Chad Mendez in April of last year via first round TKO on a fight night main event. Came back to beat Diego Sanchez over 15 minutes in his last outing in November in Mexico City. Of course, challenged Jose Aldo for the championship at UFC 169 and uh, dropped a unanimous decision to him over 25 minutes. Came back to defeat Hakran Diaz and Dennis Bermudez before running into Mendez. The bully Ricardo Lamas out of Chicago is now 16-4 and four in his mixed martial arts career and 34 years old. Eight of those 16 wins coming via decision and an even split uh, between KO, TKO, and submission stoppage victories, both four to his credit. Lamas faces Holloway. Holloway looking to make it nine straight in the UFC, which is... Uh, remarkable and rare as a winning campaign in the eight-sided cage. Jordan Breen, does he get it done? I think he does. Ricardo Lamas is, for as long as he sticks it out and so long as, you know, he's not a guy that starts getting tagged in the chin and knocked out all the time, he's going to be a guy with some staying power who's always in a potential position to knock off a prospect, a fight or two away from a potential other crack at the title. Lamas is that dude. He's rock solid. But he doesn't have the kind of offensive uh, breadth and depth that Max Holloway has and as uh, Connor talked about in passing earlier. Uh, Holloway is the kind of guy that's developed his game that he's no longer someone that just has to go breakneck and have these sort of wild fights like he did with Dennis Bermudez, for instance. He's someone that can work distance now and knows when to throw a bizarre video game button mash combo or a spinning strike out of nowhere. Uh, has a better sense about how to use his grappling game and if necessary, he's much better takedown defender than he was early in his career. I mean, I don't even want to say early in his career, even even halfway through his UFC tenure, because to say early in his career, what what was it when he came in the UFC? 3-0, and 4-0, and he's like 19 years old, some shit like that. Like he's he was X1's champion in Hawaii as a, like an 18-year-old. You know what I mean? He's like fighting like amateurs, like 16 and 17. So he's definitely got the long fighting experience. Plus, I mean, he's from Waianae. You know what I mean? There's Hilo Hawaii might be what you associate with fighting because of BJ Penn. But BJ Penn can hang out on his taro root farm all day long and smoke weed and do his thing. Max Holloway is from a place where like 20 percent of people live below the poverty line. Uh, and, and that's and that's the American poverty line. Never mind that, you know, Hawaii. I think there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last year. He's supposed to make one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year to be comfortable living in Hawaii. Great. Well, he's from a place where, you know, they just have beaches filled with homeless meth heads getting in fights all day long. And, you know, your your school system subject to repeated riots. Max Holloway is is built for this shit. And I think this is the next iteration of it. I imagine he keeps Lamas at the end of the jab when Lamas invades, try to shake the takedown off. I'm curious in seeing how much uh, Holloway breaks out the kicking game, especially if Lamas tries to turn it into a, a grappling bout. But as ferocious as his ground pound can be at times, um, people who kind of um, 
you can definitely slow Llamas down on top. I think you saw that. And, and slow him down in general. You know what I mean? Like, you saw this in the Hawker and Diaz fight. And people are willing to manage their output against Ricardo Llamas and not give him either the chances to counter or the chances to posture up on top and really rain down punishment. Uh, you can be extremely effective. And I think the more buttoned-up Max Holloway, who still knows when to bust out the low-percentage techniques and uses aggression versus when to use his length and considerably improved upon kickboxing craft, I think that's a Max Holloway that gets it done. You might see a stoppage out of, out of somewhere, but I think kind of like as, as Connor again mentioned in passing, there's a reason that we see more Max Holloway decisions now and Lamas being the tough nut to crack. I think it's more a case of Holloway putting the improved technical craft on display and winning a unanimous decision over 15 minutes. There is the ballot for Max Holloway to continue streaking in the division. He's comfortably the favorite against Lamas, who's out there as high as plus 274 as the underdog at the moment. Connor Rebush. Well, I think there are some parallels between Max Holloway's background as a human being and his experience as a fighter. Coming from that tough socioeconomic background, he somehow managed to be a genuinely likable, sweetheart kind of guy. He seems like the, the kind of person who you'd be happy to to meet on the street and have a conversation with. In the same way, in the cage, he's up against come up against some of the most dangerous fighters and proven that he deals with pressure very well, much better than most fighters. Uh, being the one of only two fighters not to be finished by Conor McGregor in the UFC isn't quite so illustrious an accomplishment now that McGregor lost to Nate Diaz, but... He is still the only featherweight not to have been finished by Conor McGregor, um, including a, a list that does not include longtime featherweight champ Jose Aldo. So that is still an accomplishment to be proud of. It's uh, it's tough to forget just how young Max Holloway still is and how young he was when he fought Conor McGregor, how young he was when he when he, you know, in my opinion, clearly won a decision over Dennis Bermudez. Um had a lot of success against Dustin Poirier before being submitted. He has been turning in better than expected performances for a long time. Now he is absolutely exceeding expectations to the point where it's almost a little disappointing when he doesn't finish Jeremy Stevens because he has now bolstered our expectations to think that he's going to be this destructive force. Even so, he had a very easy fight with a, a, a sort of comeback story in Jeremy Stevens, who has been turning in lots of great wins as a featherweight in the twilight of his career. I think Max Holloway has tons of promise going forward. The thing is, is that uh, Ricardo Lamas, probably the best wrestler he has faced, probably the best offensive wrestler Max Holloway's faced in the course of this eight-fight win streak. If You know, like Jordan said, and I agree, his takedown defense has really, really improved. He's got a very a nice, systematic, simple way of wrapping up an over, overhook, getting a cross face, creating space, and circling off the fence. How well that works against someone like Ricardo Lamas, who is a very good athlete and a very solid um, offensive wrestler, I have to wonder. Because, you know, we're talking about Charles Oliveira and Clay Collard and Andre Feely as probably the best offensive wrestlers. I guess Jeremy Stevens is on that list, but when's the last time Jeremy Stevens really thought about taking somebody down? Um, Ricardo Lamas will do that, and he's very dangerous from top position. He's very dangerous in scrambles. He's one of those guys who is just a he has such a nose for the finish, despite not being a, a massive finisher over the course of his career. Most of his impressive wins have come as a result, uh, especially the upsets, you know, like the Dennis Bermudez win, uh, the Eric Koch win, the Cub Swanson win was a big one after Swanson was on a streak. You know, it's it's just Ricardo Lamas finding an opportunity and jumping on it with gusto. And combined with a fairly technical ground game, and uh, just a really kind of a well-rounded MMA game in general, 
that makes him a pretty dangerous guy for a young fighter like Max Holloway. However, as I said, Max Holloway, I think he deals with pressure really well. I think he is getting to the point, as Jordan reiterated, that he can just kind of technically control a fight if need be. I think that's what he does against a dangerous guy like Ricardo Lamas. I like blessed by decision. And Jeff Wagenheim, is it unanimous here at Featherweight? Well, you know, Max Holloway has been um, <laughs> been, a, been a killer out there ever since that, that McGregor loss. He's uh, been, been looking like the prospect that everybody thought he was going to be and probably even more and developed into somebody who's rising and I think the, U- the UFC has big hopes for this guy. Um, and I think he could go out there and win this fight just as, he, just as the odds makers believe he is, he is going to do. However, I, I think that um, uh, maybe because I'm just fishing for an upset, I don't know. But uh, but Connor just just gave you know sort of laid out some of what I what I believe this fight to be. Um, Ricardo Lamas is is an aggressive wrestler who um, is not just he's not a, he's not a lay and pray guy. He's a guy that's going to go out there and and try to put a beating on you, and he's going to be relentless. And he's generally able to stay safe in the face of a um, in the face of a, of a, of a good striker um, Holloway has has one is going for his ninth victory in a row and that's a that's a damn good um, that's a damn good streak but Lamas's last nine fights he has seven victories and the two that he didn't win were against Chad Mendez and Jose Aldo Um you know there are not too many guys in his weight class that you could say would be more difficult than those two. Maybe McGregor, maybe Frankie Edgar, but you know these are guys at the top of the food chain at that division. I think Lamas is a guy that has a, has a good shot here. And while I while I would not be surprised at all to see Max Holloway's run continue, I'm going to go with the upset here. I think that uh, Lamas is going to make this into a a gritty, difficult fight. And um, probably not get the finish, but I, but I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go with him grinding this one out. Almost in that um, you know he's a little bit more dangerous version of of that 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 prime time Clay Guida we were, we had talked about in the earlier uh, session. Um, you know a guy who just can make you look bad, and I, I could see Lamas doing that to Holloway in this fight and uh, eking out a victory. Jeff oh. does not believe in angels. Max Holloway getting his wings clipped here. This is this is his fight to emerge as the most powerful angel in mixed martial arts above and beyond Tony Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's it, you know he's there's a lot uh, there's a lot of hype behind him and and with good reason. It's not you know it's not empty hype in, in in the least. And like I said, I would not be surprised at all if he goes out there and just continues. But but I think this is a really tough tough matchup. And uh, this is a guy. I think Ricardo Lamas is a guy that can get this done. So we'll see what happens. Speaking of the the wing tattoos as well, how haven't I thought to call Ben Henderson the fallen angel at this point in time? Ooh, Mm. yeah, post-Koroshkov. Huge huge oversight, huge oversight. Don't say that. You're hurting my feelings. (laughs) So there's a ballot for the uh, plus 274 underdog in Ricardo Lamas going up against Max Holloway Saturday at UFC 199. And our first instance of dissension here on the 199 roundtable since the very first fight we broke down in our last installment in the uh, first fight of the evening in Polo Reyes versus Dong and Kim. So uh, don't worry, Jack. We're getting in. We're getting into the point of the car where we're really going to see some disagreement. I think. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) indeed. Uh, Relish it if that's if that's something you uh 
you come to these roundtables for is uh, is disagreement. Uh, Jeff Wagenheim getting bold, going for Ricardo Lamas. We'll see what happens. Uh, looking to interrupt the eight-fight win streak of Max Holloway. I, you know, I have not taken my wallet out of my pocket, though. So oh, no, like... clearly. <laughs> no, no, I don't expect you to, to do that. Um, and uh, we go to the co-feature. We go to the first of our two main events Saturday in Inglewood. It's for the UFC Bantamweight Championship as Dominic Cruz looks to extend um, – this remarkable return to form that we've seen from him since coming back after three years on the shelf against T.J. Dillashaw on January 18th and defeating him over 25 minutes to reclaim the UFC Bantamweight Championship. He never lost but had to relinquish due to injury. And uh, staring across the cage was the uh, the rival foil who was next for him when he went down with an injury after all this long tease and drama and... Um, a different kind of storytelling that was going on around these two uh, rival coaches on the live season of The Ultimate Fighter, which was season 15. Here we are at season 22 or 3 or whatever it is. Um, so certainly long simmering, to say the least, between Faber and Cruz. And uh, now that Cruz has regained the mantle as of January, defeating TJ Dillashaw via split decision there in Boston, we get the fight. Cruz now stands at 21-1 and in his mixed martial arts career, 30 years old, working out of alliance. So just like Faber, fighting on home turf here in California on Saturday. And that one loss, of course, was to Uriah Faber in what seemed like a different lifetime in 2007. WEC 26, Faber caught him with a topside guillotine choke and got the tap in a minute 38. That's the only time Dominic Cruz has tasted defeat in professional mixed martial arts. And uh, part of the night, part of the very event where uh, they developed their distaste for each other, where uh, Cruz sort of famously signed his name over Faber's face on some of the uh, commemorative posters that they were having the fighters sign uh, for charity and the like. And uh, Faber kind of took the cue from there, and they haven't uh, been able to stand in the same room with each other since without breaking out into verbal fisticuffs. Uh, For Cruz... um, it was certainly a handsome recovery from that Faber loss, which, of course, was at 145 pounds back then. Um, in the WEC and under the Zufa banner, Charlie Valencia, Ian McCall, Ivan Lopez, Joseph Benavidez, Brian Bowles, Benavidez again, Scott Jorgensen, Faber, Demetrius Johnson, Takema Tsugaki, and TJ Dillashaw. He faces Uriah Faber on Saturday, the 33-8. and eight. Faber is now 37 years old, still working out of Sacramento and his team Alpha Male. And he's coming off the unanimous decision win over Frankie Signs at UFC 194 on December 12th. Prior to that, he lost to Frankie Edgar over 25 minutes in the Philippines last May, um, though that fight ended up, of course, having different implications with um, Faber moving up to 145 for sort of a super fight-like feel there with, with Edgar in a fight that folks had wanted to see for some time, dating back to when Edgar was king at 155 and Faber was at 145. Moving back down to 135 here is Faber beating signs and getting the title shot. Edgar, of course, going on to challenge for the interim featherweight title against Jose Aldo coming up at UFC 200. Prior to that, Faber defeated Francisco Rivera with a second-round bulldog choke after a controversial um, foul and, and lack thereof on the follow-up call by the referee, but still a, a tidy victory recorded there for Faber. Caceres as well. Um, he defeated him at UFC 195 with the rear naked choke. Isn't, uh, isn't that the opposite of tidy if something comes with a controversy? <laughs> well, uh, you know, he wrapped it up, in other words. He didn't... He, he finished, but was it tidy? Yeah. You can take out the garbage, but is it tied securely, Jack? It's tied securely. It was tied securely. 
Uh, e- even if I had to use s- specious means to stuff the garbage into the bag, as long as it's tied tightly, it's tight. It's tidy as hell. Well, actually, in this What's case, in I wouldn't even say it was tied question. tightly. I would say the garbage made it to the bin, but it was it was leaking. <laughs> the garbage there was, made there it was to a the slot bin. factor that was not. What's What's in the bag? I think is the question here. Some body Sounds parts. Like Disguise. Dead pet. Describing Faber's path to get another title shot. Yeah. <laughs> he got it. He got it in the bin. Um, last time <laughs> he checked on the way there. <laughs> challenge for the belt was Hayden Brown. Kind of recycled fighter at this point too, in a way. No, hardly. <laughs> Indeed. Um. Last time he challenged for the belt, though, was Hannon Brow in 2014. Lost to him in 342 there. So uh, you know the campaign. You know the story of Uriah Faber. Um, the rematch between these two was at UFC 132 on Independence Day weekend of 2011. Cruz picking up the victory. Most folks giving him three rounds to two over Faber. Faber accounting well for himself at junctures in the contest, even dropping Cruz at a certain point, for the most part falling prey uh, to the tactics that have been Cruz's signature. Very much looking forward to seeing how this looks all these years later, five full years later, as uh, Cruz and Faber step into the cage in Inglewood to go at it for the Bantamweight Championship. Connor Rebush, we start with you. Who leaves 135-pound king? Well, Jack, you used the phrase a return to form in describing Dominic Cruz's victory over TJ Dillashaw. I would go one step further and call it a transcension of form. I think he looked better than he ever has, which completely defies belief given the extensive layoff he had one fight in the space of four four and a half years against Takeo Mizugaki coming to that fight three or four injuries most of which required surgery uh how a man comes back from that kind of loss better than he was before showing not only no signs of ring rust but showing a renewed focus on fundamental footwork showing a renewed ability or or a completely new ability to sit down on counter punches in the pocket um, without losing any of his the pep in his step I don't know how he did that I have no idea personally I thought TJ Dillashaw deserved the nod there Uh, but it's a fight where you you can absolutely see no matter who you thought won it why there is a case to be made for either guy and it was irrespective of what I think of the result I think Dominic Cruz faced in TJ Dillashaw inarguably the best opponent of his career and performed so admirably. I just, I really can't say enough about how impressive that performance was from both guys. That, that was one of my favorite MMA fights, not to mention title matches of all time. It was just such a great contest of technical ability, um, big momentum swings, so difficult for both guys to gain any headway over the, over each other, such a high level contest. Um, and Uriah Faber, you know, you know, I, Jeff said in the, in the part one of our show here that 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 fight with Dominic Cruz was not as the second fight with Dominic Cruz is not as one sided as we tend to remember it. And that happens with a lot of fights, um, you know, already, say, for example, Verdum overcame Velasquez, Holly Holm over Ronda Rousey. We forget all the moments in those fights after just a little bit of time that the person who won the contest was not dominating the contest. It becomes very one-sided in retrospect. Uriah Faber knocked Dominic Cruz down, what, two or three times in that fight? He caught Cruz out of position, standing tall, right on the end of punching range. Uriah Faber is still quick, despite the fact that he's slower than he used to be. He's still packed some power for a bantamweight, and I think he's actually a little craftier than he used to be in terms of moving laterally, drawing his opponents in, and hitting them when they overextend themselves. 
But uh, Dominic Cruz is less likely to do that than ever before, certainly less likely uh, based on that Dillashaw fight than he was to do it in the second fight and the first fight with Uriah Faber, the most recent of which happened five years ago. It feels like an eternity. So it would really have to be a miraculous counterpunch for Uriah Faber to drop Dominic Cruz. And that's really the only way I see him creating the kind of scramble that leads to him winning, either completely cleaning the Dominator's clock or getting him on the ground and wrapping up a submission. Cruz is the better wrestler. He's significantly younger, six years younger. He's faster and more technical and has about 10 times as many tricks up his sleeve when it comes to the striking game and transitions between that and the wrestling game. So, um, yeah, yeah, like like we said earlier, it feels like a very predictable fight for a rubber match. Typically, rubber matches are really exciting because it decides who's better. <clears throat> but it's really hard to go into this one and feel anything other than that Dominic Cruz asserted his dominance over Uriah Faber in the rematch and that he has only gotten better while Uriah Faber, even in just little slight ways, has gotten worse. There is the ballot for Dominic Cruz to retain um, his newly reclaimed championship here at UFC 199. The odds makers are saying Cruz is a very comfortable favorite, hovering around minus 500. Faber out there as high as plus 435. Second to only Michael Bisping, who we'll talk about soon in terms of biggest underdogs on the card, and those are in your two title fights on Saturday. So Connor Rebush siding with Dominic Cruz to retain. Jordan Breen, what say you? I was like Dominic Cruz to retain in fairly lopsided fashion. Going back and watching the second fight, the only round I thought was uh, uh, a round that, that I would seriously even contend to give Uriah Faber would be the second round, one of the ones where he probably landed the best shot to knock Dominic Cruz off balance while he was stepping in and knocked him down for a second. But... Um, while the rounds were competitive, I didn't really think there was a whole lot of question who was the actual round winner in in most of them. And on top of that, the way that Dominic Cruz fought Uriah Faber in the second fight is not the way he's going to fight him in the third fight. Yeah, Dominic Cruz had a ton of success standing and was able to clip Uriah up for a lot of that fight. But Dominic Cruz also spent a ton of time trying to wrestle Uriah Faber to the ground and shooting takedowns off of combinations right behind them. And Faber kept shutting the takedowns down quite easily because he's an outstanding wrestler and a great scrambler. This point in time, realizing uh, what Connor alluded to, the scramble that, that Faber needs in order to grab a guillotine or take the back or do the kind of thing that he could get a submission win and somehow be become a UFC champion and dethrone Dominic Cruz. It's it's not going to be set up now by Dominic Cruz shooting in on him for no particular reason. You know, Dominic Cruz used to do that stuff because that was like a part of his sequence. He'd start landing these shots and then he would hit the knee tap behind it and take the guy down, muscle him for a second and pound on him and then pop right back up. There is absolutely no need for him to do it in this case because he can simply style on your eye of favor every which way on the feet, owing back to all of the sorts of improvements and uh, even if, like Connor, I, I think TJ Dillashaw won, won their encounter, the fact that Cruz actually sat down on more of his strikes and threw more in combination instead of like single shot, move away, single shot, move away, and then pop, 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 pop while the dude covers up and then try to take him down. He's just a much better wholesale striker now, and it doesn't even require the threat of him changing levels and taking you down the way it did during his WEC tenure and then moving into the UFC. I think when you keep that in mind, it really lessens the chance of your IFA Faber setting up that, that scramble opportunity or any scramble opportunity for that matter. So I expect Dominic Cruz to probably pitch a shutout. Uh, I mean, it, in his defense, 
as far as trying to pull off a major underdog sort of upset, at least Uriah Faber, you can actualize how he could win. If someone told you the day after, hey, man, Uriah Faber did it, you would probably have a good image of the, you know, the fact that he did engender a scramble somehow, succeed and tap out Dominic Cruz. But I don't think that Cruz is going to give him the sort of opportunities to, to have that success that he even gave him in the second fight. I think it's more of a straight striking shot out on the feet and Dominic Cruz gets an easy retention of his title. And since we already talked a little bit about the the sort of romance that is surrounding this stage of Dan Henderson's career, I, I, I should say that I should be appreciating what Uriah Faber is doing right now more than I actually do. I think Faber's kind of a hard guy to like. His, uh, his popularity among casual fans is a little baffling to me, uh, though he certainly has an impressive resume. He's a tough guy. He's been fighting for ages. The fight against Frankie Sines, um, not the kind of guy he would have had a back-and-forth brawl with long ago, but still a very tough, um, much fresher fighter with a lot less wear and tear. And Uriah Faber did the damn thing. You know, as, as his fights have gotten a little uglier over time, but the guy deserves some serious respect for being 37 years old and still being incontrovertibly a top bantamweight, especially because the bantamweight division is getting deep these days, and Faber's still up there. Yeah, and all those years after being the premier featherweight for years and years in the sport to advance an age and to cut 10 pounds and to still be um, that competitive with the best in the division. Yeah. T- uh, tantamount to what I think is a hall of fame career. No question in your eye favor. And yeah, we may be at the precipice, like you say, Connor, of actually thinking of him that way and starting to appreciate him in that way. We'll see uh, if he beats uh, Dominic Cruz, he ties that up uh, very tidily to bring that one back to the four. <laughs> but, uh, doesn't look likely. We'll see what Jeff Wagenheim has to say. Uh, Jeff, does Dominic Cruz retain? You were there that snowy night in Boston where he found a way to beat uh, TJ Dillashaw and do it very impressively. Is that the kind of game that can beat Faber in 2016? Yeah, I was there. I left my favorite scarf there at the TD Garden. I'm Ooh. still sort of pissed off about <laughs> still that. Still about Mark it. Ratner. Mark Ratner <laughs> stole it. That's yeah, where exactly. Ratner gets all the scarves. I Ratner wearing it at, at every Vegas fight now. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen him go too deep. I've seen every scarf in the drawer. Not that I, the the one place I'll I'll I, I'm not going to disagree with the picks, but I'll disagree. I I thought that um I, I thought that Cruz won that fight. Yeah. And I thought that uh, while I thought it was a close fight, I thought there were there were moments in that fight where he made T.J. Dillashaw look look at, like he was at a whole different level. I mean, there were times there were moments. Defense he, is not a scoring criteria. Yes. He, yeah. Exactly. But there were moments. There were moments where he just he schooled them. But but TJ, you know, definitely, uh, you know, had had a good performance as well. But I I I had Cruz winning that one. But we're talking about this fight, and you know, when we're talking about this rubber match, and you know, when we talk about our, the rubber match of a series, we often kind of lump them all together as as though they all happened at the same time, or or as they all happened within some you know narrow frame of time. And and that's certainly not the case with this with this uh, series of fights. I mean, you know, when Uriah Faber. Um, won that fight over Cruz back in 2007. Uh, you know, Dominic Cruz was was a was a young, uh, largely untested mixed martial artist. At least certainly untested at the level that Uriah Faber was at. And um, you know, when they when they then rematched in, in um, was it 2011? You know, Faber Faber was uh, you know well Cruz had surpassed Faber, but Faber was still kind of you know, in that in that same ballpark, and I think that's what made it a pretty good fight. I agree with Jordan that that while while it was, I thought a, a closer fight than a lot of people give it credit for being. I agree with Jordan that 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 Cruz did win 
if not all the rounds, at least at least most of them, and and uh, pr- pretty pretty well. But but Faber did handle himself pretty well. I just don't see the at this point. You know, I feel like the, these guys have kind of they're going in different directions, and um, perhaps you know if we were if we were looking at this fight, if the if the Dillashaw fight never happened, and we were looking at Dominic Cruz coming back from all that that layoff um, going in favor, I'd, I'd you know maybe give. Uriah somewhat, somewhat of a shot and think, well, this guy's going to have some ring rust. Of course, we saw what happened in that fight, and we saw that there was no ring rust for, for Dominic Cruz, who doesn't even believe it exists. But um, there, there wasn't any in that one, and he, and he performed beautifully. So just looking at the way he performed in that fight and looking at what he did against Mizugaki, I mean, that was a, that was a destruction. Um, I, just, I just don't see Uriah Faber still having what it takes to compete with this guy in a, um, you know, over the course of five rounds, I actually wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, to see this fight end before, you know, before the uh, judges get it handed to them. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm going with the other guys and, and um, you know, maybe a finish, maybe five rounds, but if it's a five round fight, it's going to be a, you know, 50, 45, if not worse. There's a ballot for Dominic Cruz as well. Running the table here on the SRN Roundtable for UFC 199 to retain his championship in the grudge match against Uriah Faber. And that brings us to our main event of UFC 199. It's for the UFC Middleweight Championship. It's champion Luke Rockhold, fresh off of his stirring victory over Chris Weidman to become champion, makes his first defense against Michael Bisping. As we've touched on, originally penciled in to rematch Chris Weidman on this show, Weidman pulling out just two weeks ago due to a neck injury, Michael Bisping, having just defeated Anderson Silva in kind of a career-capping victory for the count, gets the call, takes the fight, begins the campaign, uh, the verbal campaign that it takes to drum up interest, and who knows um, what kind of uh, marquee value they've been able to inject into this one. Bisping certainly has been doing his damnedest uh, to not only uh, bring what he hopes is a winning game to Inglewood on Saturday, but also some interest level that'll put uh, more money in their pockets. That's certainly been a uh, top-of-mind goal for both of these middleweights in in the pre-fight run-up. Been interesting to hear them talk about uh, the aspects of their game, that they think will test the other guy and to see Rockhold sort of now in this position of feeling like the king and talking about these guys. He's using phrases like, these guys don't know uh, what I can do. They're not on my level and sort of putting himself out on an island, even going so far recently as to say that, uh, you know, he would have absolutely crushed the Anderson Silva that Michael Bisping was was able to defeat. So uh, Luke Rockhold now bringing that confidence and um, getting an audience for it now that he's wearing the championship at 31 years old and 15-2 and two in his mixed martial arts career. Still, of course, proudly representing the American Kickboxing Academy under which he came up in the game. The Weidman victory was at UFC 194 this past December 12th, the finish ultimately coming at 312 of the fourth frame. Weidman, um, as always, double tough in the fight, um, despite having a deficit early, did have, I believe it was a third round where he counted very well for himself and kept it a very live possibility uh, that he could retain the championship there, though um, Rockhold is having too many tools, too much weapons, too much gas, too much speed, and eventually sinking um, in the hooks, uh, putting the pressure on Weidman, and eventually earning the TKO, vicious stoppage on the floor, and he becomes champion. Prior to that, Rockhold had defeated Leona Machida to punch his ticket to the title shot with the second round rear naked choke, running him over on Fox, beat Michael Bisping in their first meeting. It was November 7th, 2014 in Australia, the finish coming at 57 seconds of the second frame as Rockhold gets the fight to the mat, takes mount, takes the topside guillotine and gets the tap. Also defeated Tim Boach and Costa Filippou to get to the title match. 
his lone UFC loss was to Vitor Belfort uh, via head kick in that one-of-a-kind 2013 that the Phenom had with that spin kick. Um, and that was Luke Rockhold's UFC debut, so kind of cooled expectations for a fighter who was coming in as Strikeforce champion, having defeated Tim Kennedy, Keith Jardine, Jock Array, Paul Bradley, Jesse Taylor, and Corey Devella under the Strikeforce banner, more as well. Um, his other pro loss came all the way back in 2007 when he was basically powerbombed while holding on to a triangle and he got TKO'd. Um, very young in the game and grappling-oriented, certainly has come along in the kickboxing department as uh, brilliantly figured out how to leverage his kicks among the best in, in all of mixed martial arts at doing that. We'll see how he employs those against Michael Bisping. A bit of a story uh, storybook fight for him. Uh, he's 28-7 and seven now in his long mixed martial arts career and 37 years old. Of course, first introduced to him in terms of uh, America on season three of The Ultimate Fighter. Remember the run-ins with Matt Hamill, ultimately beating Josh Haynes in the, uh, the final to become Tough Three champion. And kind of a stalwart member of the roster ever since. Uh, one of the more reliable guys for the UFC to plug into main event, co-main event positions all around the world, particularly, of course, in his native England, uh, where in London on February 27th of this year, he defeated Anderson Silva via unanimous decision over 25 minutes, uh, a zany fight and an exciting fight, but one that he was able to maintain command of despite um, that unforgettable moment with the mouthpiece and the flying knee. Uh, Michael Bisping uh, is now riding a three-fight win streak prior to that having defeated Tallis Latis via split decision July of last year and last April beating C.B. Dalloway of unanimous decision. So he bounced back from the Rockhold loss and kind of was in a tough spot prior to that. Uh, he beat Kung Lee, lost to Tim Kennedy. Beat Alan Belcher, lost to Vitor Belfort. Beat Brian Stan, lost to Chael Sonnen. So it was tough for him uh, to sort of build the title campaign that was forecast for him, really since he set out in the UFC, uh, more than anything, because the UFC and Lorenzo Fertitta in particular were so gung-ho and expanding into the UK, spent all that money up front in 2007 to expand into the market, all kinds of sunk costs on advertising and branding campaigns, and lost a lot of money in that venture, uh, or at least um, took him a while to come out positive in terms of the returns and getting the right sort of formula down for how to expand into that part of the world, trying to get TV deals. And all along, the uh, the carrot was Michael Bisping going to Wembley and challenging Anderson Silva for the title. Um, back when Anderson Silva ruled the roost and was thought to be the greatest fighter of all time, if not the, just the greatest middleweight of all time. By the time he got the fight, a uh, much different picture in the middleweight division, and Michael Bisping uh, turned out to be the one with more staying power, at least uh, on that night in 2016. At 37, defeating Anderson Silva, taking the short-notice title shot, and uh, what a moment it would be for him if he could wrangle UFC gold um, after most folks had written it off as an impossibility, despite how close he came over and over again to getting that crack. So no lack of stories coalescing here in our main event at UFC 199 as Luke Rockhold faces Michael Bisping for the UFC middleweight title. Jeff Wagenheim, circle right on back to you, your pick for our second of two title fights Saturday. All right. Well, um, you know, you, you see a fight like this that materializes kind of quickly. Um, and it's a fight that's a rematch of, of one that that uh, that the champion, well, before he was champion, Luke Rockhold, won rather handily and only a year and a half ago. And so you know, I see if I see those factors and I think, OK, I'm looking for red flags. I'm looking for something that's that maybe is going to change this and change the dynamic in the favor of, of Bisping. And so uh, one of the things I would say is, is and, I, and I know Bisping's saying this, and maybe he's, you know, fighters are famous for deluding themselves, and maybe that's, this is another example of that, but, but I'm kind of, kind of uh, believing that, that, the, that his short camp may not come back to bite him specifically because um, you know, he hasn't had a lot of time to, 
to prepare for Rocco, but he's already he's already faced him, and you know he's he has the opportunity to maybe sneak up on Rocco Rocco a little bit. Um, Rocco's been preparing for you know was preparing for Weidman, a, a really you know a guy who even though he even though he beat him up pretty badly uh, was you know did give him a, a tough fight that first round that that Rockhold Weidman was a was a tough tough round for for Rockhold so he knew he knew what that guy was capable of and, you know against against Bisping Bisping didn't didn't do too much for him at all in that in that fight and so there's certainly the opportunity to uh, for him to um, imagine himself skating by in this one and you know all the talk he's had he's he's I know this is the uh, the, the Conor McGregor era where you've got to be cocky and confident and and but uh, you know I I'm a little bit wary when I see a guy who has not defended his belt once and he's talking about he's on an island and and all the other guys are are like in a, in an inferior place you know I sort of like wonder about that kind of thing so you know I, I look at those things I just mentioned and I think okay those are the the, the things that could materialize in, into an upset however. I don't see it happening. It's you know those are the I, I just don't I, when you just put these stand these two guys in in the octagon together. Um, I know Bisping talked about being headbutted in that first round in, in that first fight, and and it did happen, and it happened about a minute and a half into the fight, so we didn't really get to see very much um, before that. But what we did see before that was was Rockhold very calmly uh, staying at staying at range. And he didn't he didn't do very much, but he he didn't have but Bisping could not really even um, you know penetrate his range and lend anything at all significant. Um, and I and while that headbutt uh, and the bloody the blood over his uh, bloody on his eyelid and the, and the blood that was dripping into his eye, I'm sure it distracted Bisping in a big way uh, and altered the way he fought. Um, and maybe that's the maybe that was what led to him. Um, him taking that that head kick and and going down pretty quickly in the second round. Um, if that headbutt hadn't happened, I suspect that Bisping might have gone a little longer. But I don't think he would have beaten Rockhold that night. And uh, despite the fact that Rockhold is 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 fighting is is maybe a little let down um, and fighting him on short notice and and very confident and you know yada 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 all the different things that that might possibly go against Rockhold. I just don't see. Bisping being able to being able to pull this off, I think that uh, he's a gritty, tough guy. He's got some good, you know, kickboxing, and but he's not a, um, you know, I, I see Rockhold as being a guy that might just get caught by somebody, and I just don't think Bisping's the guy who's going to go out there and 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 um, you know hurt him with one shot and then and finish him. I think that uh, Rockhold's just uh, you know a bigger, uh, rangier, more diverse. Fighter who's um, you know I don't know how long I don't know if he's on an island all by himself and he's way better than everybody else in that weight class but I think he's better than 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 uh, 37 year old Michael Bisping. There it is the case for Bisping but the case as well for Luke Rockhold uh, to get his hand raised he is the dominant favorite in the main event Saturday the biggest underdog on the entire bill is your challenger in the main event Bisping as high as plus 600 at the moment. Rockhold as high as minus 900 in some lines, minus 1,000 I'm seeing as well. So uh, definitely uh, would be one hell of an upset, an upset for the ages for Michael Bisping if he's able to pull this off. Odds makers don't like it to happen. Jeff Wagenheim doesn't see it happening. Connor Rebush, how about you? Well, you know, Jeff named very astutely all of the ways that Luke Rockhold could be set up for a fall, and I completely agree. I think Luke Rockhold is a little defensively open as a striker. 
for a guy with such a great grappling game, he's not a fantastic offensive wrestler. Uh, last time he faced a really big, strong guy that he felt like he needed to take down to beat, it was 2013 Vitor Belfort, one of a kind, as you said, uh, Jack Encarnacion. But, you know, he couldn't get Vitor Belfort down to the ground with traditional wrestling attacks. He's more of a... Luke Rockhold's game is the anti-AKA game because he faces all of these stocky wrestlers every day in the gym, guys like Cormier and Velasquez. He has developed a game that counters that perfectly. He's got the exact opposite type of frame. He's long and uh, tall and fairly thin, and he's become a really good counter-wrestler and a guy who snatches up submissions and scrambles. Um, but I am not of the opinion that his game is flawless. Um Former Sherdogger Pat Wyman and I had a bit of an argument about this on uh, Heavy Hands this week, but I was talking about uh, how significant a role I think the physicality of Luke Rockhold plays in this matchup, and that's why even though if both of these guys were on the same physical plane, if Michael Bisping didn't, you know, if, if he had some kind of pop, some kind of dynamicism, the ability to change a fight in the blink of an eye, then I would say he would be a significantly more even with Luke Rockhold, or if Luke Rockhold didn't have that, uh, if he was not the physical specimen he is, I'd say he'd be more even with Michael Bisping. Um, if both of these guys were to teach a seminar on striking and ring craft, I don't think anyone would be surprised to learn that Michael Bisping would have a lot more to teach on that uh, on that front than Luke Rockhold. He has a very complete, very deep game that has benefited from years of experience. But Michael Bisping is decidedly not a physical threat. Uh, he has made his name being the stereotypical blue-collar hard worker who outlasts people and goes in there fighting a smart fight and, uh, and beats up guys and then struggles with the guys at the top of the division who are invariably physical monsters. And Luke Rockhold is probably the most physically monstrous of all of the physical monsters that Michael Bisping's ever faced. I think he's legitimately up there with guys like Yoel Romero, Jacare Souza. He was even more athletic. He was stronger, had better stamina, and more dynamic a finisher than Chris Weidman in their fight. And Chris Weidman's a massive, powerful middleweight. So... I don't think you can overstate how dramatic the physical disparity is between these two guys. On top of that, Luke Rockhold has a very sound technical game. Um, he makes up the fact by not being an incredible offensive wrestler by the fact that he will be able to overpower Bisping, whether he catches him with a strike on the feet and sends him down like he did in the first fight or overpowers him in the clinch where he is um, a very, very powerful and very skillful fighter. He's going to find some way to get Bisping to the ground, and that is the one area of this fight where the technical edge as well as the physical edge are firmly in uh, Rockhold's favor. He's a fantastic submission grappler. I think his ground game is far and away the best aspect of his whole MMA game. Um, you know, I, I there's a there's a there's a tiny idiotic romantic part of me that would love to see Michael Bisping even come in here and compete. He didn't do that badly in the first round of their first fight, but a Luke Rockhold win feels inevitable. And more than that, a Luke Rockhold finish feels inevitable because Michael Bisping just cannot compete physically enough to make some of his technical advantages uh, to make those count against a guy like Luke Rockhold. There you have it. Two strong ballots for Luke Rockhold to retain. Over Michael Bisping in the main event of UFC 199, Jordan Breen, bring us home. Like Luke Rockhold to retain his title in his first title defense and think it'll probably happen first 10 to 12 minutes or so. 
Luke Rockhold is quite simply one of the best offensive fighters in mixed martial arts. He's got tons of technique absolutely everywhere. On top of that, he's got the athleticism and creativity to go with it. I mean, he's he's out there just doing jazz on people. And it's going to be a jam session on Michael Bisping like it was first time around, even though unlike most jam sessions, probably won't take that long. Rockhold's the kind of guy that can just get out there and freestyle in most fights, period. A guy that only kind of needs the the vaguest points of strategy and style because mm-hmm. he's so adaptable and can attack in so many different ways. He's someone that can knock you out straight standing, head or body. He's someone, if he hurts you in either one of those ways, can dive on your back directly and choke you out the way that he was uh, very familiar with doing during a strike force tenure. He can take you down from, you know, the clinch, trying to ground and pound a bit and then take your back. He can take you down from the clinch and dive right into a submission. He can counter your takedown and, you know, jump guard and tap you that way. The 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 possibilities are just about limitless. And going back to what Connor said, this is a dude that's like, you know, six foot two, six foot three and absolutely massive for 185 pounds to boot on top of all those assets just mentioned. So this is not going to be a good fight for 37-year-old Michael Bisping, who has one functional eyeball at this point in time (laughs) and has never had serious stopping power. Bisping, I mean, he has got to try to... I mean, frankly, as, as even if it may descend into mockery, even if it may get him lit up, even if it may make people make fun of him forever, there is no upside to him trying to just go out and make it 25 minutes. Not only is that a tough road to hoe, but he's not going to win that way. He's not going to be like the round winner against Luke Rockhold unless everything I think about mixed martial arts is wrong. He seriously, in spite of having no legitimate, serious one-shot stopping power, has to make it some kind of crazy brawl or some wild uh, sort of uh, gong show with Luke Rockhold to just set up opportunities where he might hit him in the face, hit him in the face clean and, and change the sort of complexion of the fight. And I don't think Bisping's actually going to fight that way because he really never has. Well, to uh, his credit, he he did come out and show a lot better sort of fringe and pocket boxing ability against Anderson Silva. Um, Silva, who probably still has more depth to his striking game, despite the fact that he's hitting a steep physical cliff in recent years. And Rockhold, like I said, he's not a great defensive fighter. So I think so. Bisping's... So if you mean the guy who tried for 10 minutes and knocked Michael Bisping <laughs> yeah. out in that 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. Like round? Michael Bisping would either have to get the luckiest shot on earth for a guy with no striking power, or he'd have to fight 25 flawless minutes with one of the most dangerous finishers. And one of the, one of the, one of the best combinations of skill and physical prowess in the division. And he's just not that good that he can fight that kind of perfection for that long. Happy the man got his day in court, whatever circumstances conspired to make it happen. But this is not a good look for him, just like it wasn't a good look in the first fight. And I think that tendency is only exacerbated here. I expect Luke Rockhold to pelt him with kicks. I expect the left hand to be on point. In the first fight, you know, even when Bisping was able to, like, land some counters, I thought it was very easy for Rockhold to move Bisping whatever direction he wanted, whether it was getting him to circle to either side or moving him straight back. If that's going to be the case, again, it's going to be more of the head-body attack. And as soon as Rockhold lands something big, either with the left hand or a big kick to the head or body, he's going to dive on Bisping. And it's either going to be uh, a back take, ground and pound to a finish, or he's going to dive into a submission. And that's going to be it again. Whether it's a one-handed guillotine while he plants another hand on the ground pro wrestling style or something else sassy entirely. This is Luke Rockhold's fight to lose. And not even just his fight to lose. This is his fight to not go out and absolutely shine in. He's facing a guy in his first title defense on short notice who's not just a big name, but who's going to provide him with exactly the kind 
a stylistic look necessary for him to show off all the best assets of his offensive virtues. Like I said, uh, Luke Rockhold offensively, he is he is MMA's jazz man, and Michael Bisping going to get flunked in music class again. <laughs> uh, can I can I ha- conduct a quick survey? Are you guys happy or not to see Michael Bisping get his first title shot after ten years, and and for what reason? Yeah, because he's not going to get it in any other context, and yeah. I thought the idea of the immediate Wyman rematch was absolutely idiotic in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I thought I'm I'm happy for him too. It's a he, he uh, you know he stayed in there fighting. He, he earned it. You beat Anderson Silva. I know it, it's this Anderson Silva that it's not prime prime Anderson Silva, but still, he won that fight, and um, you know, so it's good for him. He's he, and you know he's got a he's got a chance. I mean, we're we're no, none of us is going to pick him. And there's and there's a lot of reasons why he why he should lose, but you know the guy's the guy's a tough fighter and he's 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 getting his moment in the sun. So you know mm-hmm. more power to him. And further, I think it's it's kind of charming the way it worked out for him because while they were sort of trying to cynically position him with win streaks to get the title shot, you know there was all I think there would have been some sour tastes in mouths with the soft touch they were giving him in terms of matchmaking uh, to keep that prospect alive for that big UK main event. Now he gets it at a point in his career where he actually you know wasn't favorably match made and exceeded expectations and stayed yeah. stayed afloat after he was written off. So. It kind of it kind of comes at a point where there was an extra chapter to the Bisping story than I think we expected, and yeah, that's kind of cool for his career. The fact, story. the fact as well that there's not that long a buildup. The fact he is a late replacement. Think about the dynamic that we're discussing both with this and with Cruz Favor. If we had to look forward to this quote unquote for three or four <laughs> months, I mean, literally every conversation would just be like. Yeah, dude, USC 109 sucks because Michael Bisping is going to get headshopped again by Luke Rockhold. At least there's a very short gestation period for this where you don't have to talk yourself out of the general excitement and the well-wishing of, hey, at least Michael Bisping gets his day in court. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of a win-win for me as an MMA fan because, A, I have grown – I've developed a serious affinity for Michael Bisping over the years. He's a guy that it's really easy to hate when you first get into MMA and then you watch him struggle <clears throat> – for so long, you can't help but root for him by the end of it. But also, he's really easy to hate, so I won't be that troubled watching him get mollywopped by Luke Rockhold. So it works no matter what happens. So and if and if uh, you know if Uriah Faber can have seventy-seven title shots, why not one for Michael Bisping? Yeah, that's right. He deserves to get it served up. So from being somehow hollow inside to now feeling like it's a win-win, Connor Rebush has if come Michael, full if, if Michael Bisping, if Michael Bisping was hollow inside, that's what actually he needs. Because if he was, yep. if he was yeah. just smaller, if he would have a million title shots by now, if he was, if if Michael Bisping. <laughs> Took all his skills. Literally hollow inside. Yeah, like if he took all his skills and put them in the body of Brad Pickett, he could have been WC and UFC champion, maybe. Mm, (laughs) Those organs, you know. Those damn organs. They're the problem. But uh, great stuff, panel. And uh, we have our three ballots for the main event, and it is Luke Rockhold to retain handily, as the odds makers are predicting. Um, But Michael Bisping has the chance to do something here. And. to hear him tell it, he's going to go out on his his sword. He's spoken in no uncertain terms about feeling like he, to what the panel said, just simply can't fight the strategy that that's won him fights before and has kind of dictated um, 
his fighting style before. So expect him to uh, go for broke Saturday, and we'll see what happens at UFC 199. UFC touches down in Inglewood, California for the first time. A slew of um, California-born and bred fighters up and down the card. Looking forward to it. Of course, Cruz and Faber in the co-main event in the grudge match for the Bantamweight title. Before we get you out of here, a quick review of the picks to get you fully set for UFC 199 on Saturday night. Of course, our panelists uh, over the past couple of days, Sherdog.com's Jordan Breen, Sherdog contributor, as well as Bloody Elbow and Bad Left Hook contributor, as well as co-host of the Heavy Hands podcast, Connor Rebush is with us and joining us for the first time. He covers mixed martial arts for Sports Illustrated's website. Uh, You can see him um, often on the MMA Beat on MMAfighting.com. Jeff Wagenheim joining us as well. We're going to open up on Saturday with four preliminary fights on Fight Pass, starting with Polo Reyes versus Donghan Kim at lightweight. Reyes is the pick of Connor Rebush, while Jordan Breen and Jeff Wagenheim see Dong Hyun Kim, the maestro, Dong Hyun Kim, getting his hand raised to kick things off Saturday. Next up, Kevin Casey faces Elvis Mutoptich at middleweight, and here we begin a long streak of unanimous picks across the board from all three panelists, all three here, like Elvis Mutoptich to defeat Kevin Casey. At light heavyweight, Jonathan Wilson, in his sophomore UFC appearance, welcomes debutante Luis Enrique da Silva from Brazil to the UFC. All three panelists, like Wilson, to log his second UFC victory there. Sean Strickland faces Tom Breeze in the Fight Pass prelim main event at welterweight. All three panelists like the Brit Breeze to get another victory and remain undefeated on Saturday. Fox Sports 1 prelims kickoff 8 o'clock in the east with a featherweight contest betwixt Cole Miller and Alex Caceres. All three panelists like Cole Miller to get his hand raised there. Women's strawweight pits Jessica Panay versus Jessica Andraj. All three panelists like Panay to bounce back from a grueling loss to Yorani Andrzejczyk to right ship and get back on the winning track at strawweight. Up next at lightweight, it's Benil Dariush and James Vick in a rather hastily arranged fight, but still very competitive and important to the division. All three panelists like Benil Dariush to bounce back off the loss to Michael Chiesa and get his hand raised, handing James Vick uh, his first pro defeat. At featherweight, Brian Ortega faces Clay Guida. All three panelists like Brian Ortega to close out the Fox Sports 1 prelims Saturday in style, defeating the veteran Guida. We open up the main card, 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern start time, your traditional start time for pay-per-view. Dustin Poirier faces Bobby Green in the opening contest at lightweight. All three panelists like Poirier to continue rolling at 155 pounds and getting his hand raised. At middleweight, Dan Henderson steps onto native turf to face Hector Lombard at 45 years old. All three panelists, however, like Hector Lombard to shut down Dan Henderson and really bring to a boil the questions of how much longer should Dan Henderson really be doing this. At featherweight, Max Holloway faces Ricardo Lamas. Here we do have some dissension as Jeff Wagenheim sees a path to victory for the former featherweight title challenger in Lamas, while Jordan Breen and Connor Rebush both like Max Holloway to make it nine consecutive victories in the UFC on Saturday. At bantamweight for the championship, Dominic Cruz defends the title uh, after returning in January after that extensive layoff and beating TJ Dillashaw for the belt to face Uriah Faber. All three panelists like the Dominator to retain the championship over his arch nemesis Faber, second from the top. And in the main event, once again, Luke Rockhold defends the UFC middleweight championship for the first time against Michael Bisping, capturing that long-awaited opportunity here on short notice. All three panelists, though, like Luke Rockhold to retain in style in his native state Saturday on pay-per-view. You do want to keep it locked to SureDog.com and the SureDog Radio Network all weekend for your complete UFC 199 coverage. We're, of course, on the ground in Englewood, and we'll be bringing you our live coverage play-by-play here on the site as the pay-per-view unfolds. Beat down after the bell with TJ DeSantis immediately following the pay-per-view here on the SureDog Radio Network. All you've come to expect from the global authority in MMA. Thanks so much for joining us for the SureDog Radio Network roundtable presentation, and we do hope you enjoy UFC 199. 
The preceding show is a TJ DeSantis production and is property of the SureDog Radio Network. Its content is intended for private use only.